Hello, and welcome to Ben Yo Chats. If you're curious about the world, this show is for you. What does disability teach us about being human? On this episode, I speak to Dan Goodley. Dan is Professor of Disability Studies, and we chat about how disability provokes deep questions about humanity, such as who is allowed to be human and how interdependent are humans? If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast. Thank you. Be well. Hey, everybody. I'm excited to speak to Dan Goodley. Dan is a professor of disability studies and education, and he has written the thought-provoking book, Disability and Other Human Questions. Dan, welcome. Hi, Ben. Thank you very much. So first question, who and how do we decide who gets to be human? I ask this as this comes up in your book, and I don't think I had fully appreciated how certain uh, majorities or say elites do decide on who gets status as human rights or human dignity. Um, and to take a little bit of an adjacent area, I was following this year uh, a lot of the news on Britney Spears in the US. And I was astonished by how many of her rights had been taken away from her. And then I was reflecting on what is true for Britney has to be and even is much more true for many people with uh, disability and actually other groups of people as well. And that kind of felt really shocking to me. And then I was reading your book and I thought, wow, this, this, there is a really big question about who gets to decide who is human or not. From your thinking and what you said in your book, what do you think of this question? Well, firstly, thank you for uh, bringing together a consideration of human disability and also Britney Spears, and that's a fantastic linkage in there. I applaud you for the question. Um, I mean, yeah, I think the question of who decides to be human or, if you like, is allowed to be human is, is an old question, an old question that, um, asked by many humans over the years. And I suppose one of the ways I'd want to answer that question would be through the ideas generated by disabled people and by uh, the ideas generated by disabled people's organizations. So anything I say today um, is, is, is um, said through and aware of the contributions of disabled people and their writing in the world. And I suppose if we think of the case of Brittany, one of the key elements that her uh, fans and Brittany activists have, have pushed has been the question of um, capability um, and autonomy that's been taken away from her in relation to her own life. Uh, and so there's been some really, really interesting documentaries and obviously discussions through social media. Um, I think that's uh, positioned around and centered around the question of whether or not Britney Spears is being allowed to live the life that she herself wants to live. And I think that's a question associated with human ability. And it seems to me from uh, uh, listening and reading to the ideas coming from disabled people is that this idea of ability is something that we feel we we kind of know, we all have a kind of, we kind of hold around these assumptions in relation to ability, but it's actually quite um, a tricky concept. And it's interesting how some people are assumed to be able whilst others are not. And of course, disability is the opposite of ability um, in terms of the way it's constructed. And for many disabled people, their rights are taken away from them um, based upon the notion that they are not capable that they don't have the abilities, the competences to live their life. And it seems to me, therefore, that through disability, um, whilst we need to sit with that very phenomenon, we need to spend a little bit more time, perhaps a lot of time, um, asking questions of ourselves about the assumptions that we hold in relation to this phenomenon called ability. So, yes, yeah, so I think the first or one, one way we could start to uh, critique what it means to be human or who's allowed to be human is by sitting with the concept of ability and subjecting that to some 
deep critique. That's super interesting. And I'm sure we'll get on to kind of thinking about this social model of other models of the world. Um, I, I guess I'm sometimes a little bit worried about labels and, and how we kind of use and misuse words. Um, and in fact, interestingly, recently, um, I was called um, ableist by somebody. And actually, in this particular situation, I thought it was uh, sort of very ironic because it was, I'm sure, being misused because this person was simply being uh, abusive and I called them out on it. However, I am certain that there are many times uh, that I am being what I think people would call ableist in this sense of centering the world around uh, able people, how was, we might think about it. So I was just thinking, thinking about what it means to be a productive person or how the world is designed. How useful do you think is this idea of ableism or, or, or centering under that? And should this be uh, the kind of uh, model that we should be pushing back against or at least scrutinizing in order to as assess more deeply what it is to be human and who we should allow to do. I sometimes get a bit worried about words uh, and labels, but they can be helpful in many instances. Uh, in fact, recently I was called ableist, and I thought at that particular instance was ironic as I was pretty sure it was being misused, that I was, this person was simply being abusive and I, and I called them out on it. However, I'm sure a lot of the times I am being what I think some would consider ableist, as in that I center my worldview around this idea about what a typical productive person might be, the world being designed for that uh, typical uh, person. And I just wonder how useful it is, this idea as, as a concept that maybe we can criticize and push back against is. And then I think towards, um, well, actually I was, the last few decades, I was gonna say this year, but particularly we're hearing these in, in uh, these instances of horrific um, institutionalized um, abuses. And it seems to me that some of these ab abuses are, are rooted in some of this notion or rather had the institutions or the, pe or, or the people in the culture had centered their thinking from a different spot, then you could see that maybe we wouldn't have, have, have appeared to have those type of um, abuses. Obviously they're very complicated and it's not gonna, it's not necessarily gonna save them. But I, I just kind of think that actually that thinking of the world is, is maybe much more useful than, um, uh, uh, than some critics might give its credit for. I was wondering mm. what you might have thought about that. Well, I think, um, I think ableism and disabilism are often used interchangeably. Um, and I think, uh, for example, in the States, um, when people talk about people being ableist, I, I personally think they're talking about them being disabled. So I suppose for me, the, the way to think about this is that we now enjoy um, four decades of uh, scholarship, writing, research, driven by disabled people uh, and their allies. Uh, and in the UK, for example, um, there's been a lot of focus and continues to be a lot of focus on disabledism. And disabledism is the, the institutional exclusion of people with impairments. And of course, that remains an absolutely crucial part, not only of research, but obviously of activism, of the arts, of kind of, you know, uh, pinpointing those moments of exclusion and challenging them. And that's absolutely essential. Um, over the last decade or so, there's also been a move within activist and uh, academic and artist circles focusing on something called ableism. And I'm thinking of the, of the work of people like Gregor Walbring, who's a disabled writer uh, in Canada. And what Walbring uh, does is to say, yeah, disabledism is absolutely significant. We need to contest it and we need to understand it. But one of the things that kind of goes on in our everyday lives that we don't subject to the same kind of critical scrutiny is something called ableism. And ableism is the idealization of able-bodied and, uh, and able minds. Um, something I suppose, you know, when people talk about the able-bodied uh, and how the able-bodied um, uh, occupy a kind of position which is um, often kind of a, a higher in the hierarchy than disabled people, what they're doing really is they're talking about ableism. And it's intriguing to me because I think that we don't actually question 
similar to the kind of with the idea of ability, we don't actually question or, or even kind of subject to kind of some real critical thought, the way in which ableism underpins everything. So not only are, you know, if we, the classic case within disability studies is, of, you know, um, uh, the inaccessible building that the wheelchair user cannot enter. And there's an example of disablism. But underpinning that is what we might call an ableist architecture physically as an architecture, but also an architecture in terms of kind of a mindset or an intellectual or a philosophical view. And it's, it's quite worrying even that even some of the more transformative or radical thinkers that you might think of often themselves also do not subject their own kind of ideas to this kind of interrogation where they actually might be ableist. I mean, I'm filling out a research application at the moment. And the first question of the research application is research vision. And, you know, implicit within that is vision. So this is a very Oculus centric. Uh, and I'm just thinking if I was a, you know, a blind scholar or blind researcher filling that out, what is there a moment there already the language being used, which is kind of excluding me. And so I think disablism and ableism, we need to unpack these two things. They complement one another. But for me, they're also very different conversations that we need to have. Um, so I'd be interested in, you know, someone saying to you, you're being ableist. Perhaps maybe they're saying you're being disablist. I don't know. We need to be clearer in the kind of language that we use because these are complementary practices, but they are very different practices. Yes, actually, so I agree. In this instance, I think they, they were hiding behind, uh, they were being disingenuous, but actually, had they wanted to be more specific, they were, I think, thinking about a disablism rather than an ableism. But I thought it was ironic because it made me think that actually, because uh, I, I thought back to that incident and said no, but I actually thought back even just to my week and I was thinking, well, actually, you, you probably would have been right had you just, you know, picked out some of my day to day or some of my uh, you know, normal thinking, but actually in this instance, you were, you, you were wrong. Um, so th that was one of the, one of the triggers for it. Um, and I guess this kind of leads into one of the themes of your book on the role of technology as well, because in, in some ways that is also bringing this other dimension as in what happens if we are somehow technology enabled or even technology disenabled, like <laughs> somehow hybridize you, you, some people would argue that social media is disabling us in in certain ways or at least we're is an extension of us not you know which could have be for good or, or for good or for ill uh, right so that was the uh, idea there but obviously you can have it in in physical mechanical limbs uh we're seeing it in terms of interpreting brain waves uh for people who are pre-verbal or non-verbal or have an, an issue of um, verbalizing can now verbalize somewhere um, and I was wondering how is this uh, influencing your your thinking and actually is this maybe one way of people to unpack it of saying well if technology is doing this and is, is making us uh, think about these ideas in a different way but maybe we should just be thinking about them in a different way regardless of where the technology is which is I thought one of an interesting uh, reflections I had on, on reading your chapter on on technology well, I, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I'm a, I, you know, I have a, like most people, a kind of ambivalent relationship with technology, you know, it's a love and hate thing. I mean, it's a Freudian kind of classic case study here of, of, of something that's both something that I design, also something that I push against. Um, and I think what's interesting about the, the way in which um, culturally we think of technology and disability, I think there are a couple of kind of common ways uh, or common stories that are told. I think one of them is that technology um, permits disabled people, people with physical impairments, for example, an opportunity to become um, as functioning as non-disabled people uh, in the world. Uh, and I think that's a story that we need to kind of, um, you know, challenge and to be, maybe cynical about sometimes, because I think that leads to a second kind of area for me, which is around, and it's a question really, is how, how do those engaged in technology understand disability? And I think what happens is that um, if we hold an idea 
of disability is something that has to be cured or rehabilitated through technology, which let's be honest, this, this is a kind of common trope that we have within our society. Then there's some real problems going on there about the ways in which disability is understood. And I think like most areas of life and technology is just one of them, um, disability rarely gets um, offered up as an opportunity to think more broadly about how we understand the human condition. Uh, and it frustrates me often that disability is often excluded when people are exploring what it means to be human. It's kind of almost like the last chance saloon disability might eventually get thrown in there. And just as there's been some really important and crucial work, for example, around race or around sexuality or around gender, which is all work that we need to kind of come behind. I want to ask why is disability always left out, or it seems to me anyway, often left out of those conversations. So we go back to the, the point of technology. How often do we uh, ask or consider the fact that many disabled people are digitally excluded for a variety of, a variety of ways? We know this because many disabled people live in poverty. And also along the kind of, if like, the technological offer, what is the offer for? Is the offer still associated yet again with the notion of some kind of curative or rehabilitative offer of technology? Because if that's all that technology is being offered, uh, or the grounds on which te technology is being offered, then you can see straight away that there's some pretty dangerous and dodgy ideas uh, associated with disability that are just kind of being implicitly brought in to the practice. Yeah, I, I agree. I, it's interesting talking to a lot of my friends and allies when I mentioned that, oh, the statistics, at least in the UK, are you're talking about at least one in five somewhere on, uh, you know, a disability uh, spectrum of some sort, uh, potentially higher. And certainly in, in the world, you're talking at at least uh, a billion people, again, probably higher. So when you're thinking about all of these allied uh, groups, uh, it, it tends to be one of the largest. And yet it's probably, like you say, not so involved in the conversation and then the conversation is is um you know led by um uh, not necessarily or obviously the whole range of advocates that you could have which i find is quite uh, telling um as well and, and i do think thinking about your comment of technology and then also we had it in design i've been thinking a lot about and i guess it's been around around a while but this sort of social model idea of disability where if you just sent it around I guess it's just ideas of inclusiveness across everything that you'd like to be inclusive. You, you get a world where essentially everyone, or at least the vast, vast majority, um, uh, uh, lives peaceably and, and well, uh, which just seems extraordinary. And I, I was actually talking to a philosopher the other day, Jonathan Wolf, who was mentioning how that in, in, it impacted his philosophy. And we've had people like Tom Shakespeare talk about this. Uh, as well. And he was saying he was a little bit doubtful about, you know, utopias generally, but at least taking this model just a little bit further along from where it is today, you kind of see that actually you have enormous net benefit to so many uh, kinds of, of peoples that it's almost extraordinary that we haven't explored it, uh, that we haven't explored it more. Um, I was thinking, what what do you think about where we are with it, with kind of social models of this idea and how it might uh, impact our world and, and what we could be doing about it. Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm very happy with the idea of utopias. I think, um, you know, it's probably better to get out of bed in the morning with a utopian view of the day uh, than a dystopian one. Um, and, you know, personally, the social model disability for me was uh, a radicalizing experience because um, at that time, as a psychology undergraduate, uh, being subjected to some very pathological views of not just disabled people, but of human beings more broadly, the social model came along and it did something um, very affirmative because what it did is it said, you cannot understand the human condition of which disability is part outside of the social world. And, you know, any sociologist listening would think, well, well, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? You know, I mean, we, we are what we are because of the social world. Something curious happens with disability when it enters the world. And what it is, is that when it often enters the world, people tend to understand straight away the word disability 
in terms of either some kind of individual tragedy, deficit or flaw, uh, some kind of something wrong with a human being. And as soon as you start doing that, you then draw upon ideas that are, are set up to understand that kind of individual, um, deficient individual outside of society. Some, some of those uh, ideas come from psychology, for example. And so the social model remains, for me, one of the, the most important interventions in the field of disability, but also has um, many connection, of course, with other transformative uh, ways of thinking, whether it be associated with Black Lives Matter or whether it be associated with current uh, uh, trans politics, which are essentially uh, asking us to, to pause and to act upon the fact that certain human bodies and minds are not given the same value as other human bodies and minds. So the social model is, if you like, a kind of an entry point into a whole host, a smorgasbord of different kind of theoretical and political ideas. Um, there's been a lot of energy spent over the, the last 20 years critiquing the social model, looking at the social model's flaws, um, saying, well, have we gone too far? Have we flipped over a little bit? It's a little bit like, you know, the Labour Party. Um, you know, we've gone too Corbynite in our deployment of the social model. And it seems to me that the social model, particularly in these post-COVID times, has never been more relevant than, than today. So the social model for me remains, um, like I say, this kind of entry point. And with any entry point, you can go, you know, through a, a variety of different roads and routes. And it seems to me that there's opportunities not only for understanding and, and pushing the social character of disability, but also seeing how the social character of disability connects with other aspects of the human condition, each of which, of course, are also deeply social. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I reflect this also touches on your technology point that uh, we are, well, give me a, I'll give you a couple of examples. In, in Iceland today, I was speaking to this with Sally Phillips, um, there are uh, few to actually know uh, people with Down syndrome uh, being born now uh, because of the way that they do their testing. And I was speaking to some people who are very deeply involved uh, within uh, deaf culture and because of medical theories, therapies for hearing, there's a big debate as to the impact on what's uh, a really rich and, and beautiful culture uh, in itself um, as well. And I think stronger thinking about the social model, imperfect as it might be itself, as all models of the world are not the world, right? But as, as, a, as an entry point could be really helpful for thinking about that. Um, but I, I was wondering, did you have any reflections on this, on how actually, uh, you know, marginalised communities are, are becoming uh, potentially more marginalised communities and, and, a, and a, mm -hmm. a social model is perhaps a way, a way back in? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose the first thing I'd say is that the way in which the social model language or the social model discourse has kind of uh, entered the if you like, popular discourse is inevitably, uh, it leads to some simplifications. And so there's a very simple distinction made between the medical and the social models of disability. Um, what happens with that, that kind of very simple distinction is that those people associated with the medical model often feel um, very hard done to. Um, they often feel that they're being uh, victimized um, and, one could also argue uh, that we're in danger of kind of, you know, an either or settle. Now, for me, I think what the social model does is it's because it's social by nature, is it views all practices as also having this kind of social, cultural, economic, political aspects to them. So when you talk there about those examples of, of, of testing for Down syndrome or, um, or uh, medical interventions around in relation to to deaf to deaf people or deaf, the deaf community i'm now starting to think about different words and different ways of understanding that perhaps are not as simple but might actually be a bit more 
useful in understanding what, what's going on there. And I think what you, you're describing there is medicalization. And medicalization is very different to, to medicine. None of, you know, not, you and I are not gonna, uh, you know, we get a headache where, you know, we're probably gonna think at some point, embrace some of the ideas that come through medicine. You know, we'll take a, we'll take a tablet um, for a headache. But when um, we enter something called medicalization, this is where it's become a totalizing discourse. And I think that we are um, to draw upon some kind of uh, ideas from uh, disability studies, but also from science and technology studies. We are living in a particular period of time, which is framed by medicalization. That is whereby the human condition is increasingly being understood through the discourses um, that we might call broadly medical. And anything that's medicalized means that we end up uh, simplifying and going down a particular route. I'd also throw in a couple of other ones, which I think are, are you know, kind of bedfellows, if you like. Psychologization. This is where, you know, uh, any understanding around the human condition, whether it be emotion or whether it be the way we think cognition, that well, there's some powerful ideas out there that come from psychology and its um, fellow uh, disciplines that end up um, endangering the way in which we understand ourselves. So it's impossible to think outside of these kind of very powerful discourses of psychologization. I'll throw in a third, which is psychiatrization, which is very difficult to say. But again, it's, you, you see, it's kind of, it's these processes are drawn upon very powerful ideas through which people now tend to understand themselves. And of course, if you think about the current debates around the mental health crisis um, within young people, for example, one of the things we need to consider is the extent to which um, mental life, or whatever we want to call it, is increasingly understood through very, very powerful processes of psychologization and psychiatrization, to the extent to which it seems for all of us actually, almost impossible to, to talk of our emotional lives without drawing upon some pre-existing, very powerful ideas from medicalization, psychologization. So this is what the social model is doing is it's, again, it's an entry point into thinking critically about the very words and the very ideas that we use to understand our everyday um, lives, you know, living with a human condition. That's super interesting. I hadn't thought I've thought about medicalization, but I hadn't thought about it. And the way you articulate it, I, I do think, yes, you, you could think of those examples that I gave and described as a sort of medicalization uh, um, thing happening. And if the social model gives you that, that's very interesting. And uh, uh, I do that because actually I'm thinking a lot about um, death at the moment uh, as well as an idea. And I think that is something which is obviously as well being very medicalized and this is this interesting this this idea and also um science is is a is a process really uh, uh mo you know mostly and so scientific ideas around say the brain or psychology or psych psychiatry are, are are models and processes and for instance if you if you talk about psychiatrization uh most of those uh drugs which work on the brain uh we don't really understand how they work very well uh if at all uh, for a bunch of them so it's quite it's quite interesting so you've got this kind of empirical sort of medicalization mm. of of a, of a thing um mm. but yeah there are there are social ways about thinking about those ideas uh, uh, as well and maybe they do go hand in hand and and, and intertwined and it would be more useful to try mm. and think of them sort of uh, uh together not necessarily oppositionally but certainly not not one without not one without the other which is mm. your point about thinking of about rooting yourself in the fact that the the human world is nothing without the, the the social world. That also brings me on to another thought, which is through your book on interdependence and some of that. We talked about a little bit on potential interdependence on uh, technology and these other ideas. Uh, and I was thinking, uh, I was discussing the other day, someone uh, actually was with this philosopher on the philosophy of 
music therapy or music performance. Uh, mm. And I was noting that I found this was an incredible thing in philosophy because someone is enabling somebody else to produce music and the end musicality uh, only exists in the relationship in the relationship with with all of that and it, it doesn't mm. exist without what we would call this interdependence but it's, to me it was kind of beyond an interdependence because the the relationship the uh, the connections were the thing the actual end uh, piece of music beautiful that it is does, does not exist without all of those uh, connections and mm. then I then reflecting on your book I was thinking that actually that extends to uh, I mean potentially all of human life right but <laughs> with all of this 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 fact that we are we are nothing uh, that's probably too extreme but we we are uh, we are not the same without our connections and interdependence and understanding us without that seems to me a misreading mm. of the human condition, which again, I hadn't really thought about that through, say, a, a, an ability disability lens or this performance lens, but I was thinking about extending that and I thought, mm. uh, wow, this is kind of a really potentially you could apply it as quite a deep insight and therefore critical to maybe some other ways of thinking or opens up some things. Um, has has your thinking about maybe you could describe how you thought about interdependence in your chapter and maybe how you're you're, you're using it in your current research mm. and thinking now yeah i mean i, I mean interdependence uh, is uh, is a big idea that's come uh, not only through disability research but very much through feminist research um, through um, critical race ideas around uh, community. Um, so it, it's a, a concept that's been utilised. And of course, you could argue that at the heart of many, um, you know, uh, political or cultural uh, groupings is, is, is what we're talking about here is a kind of notion of, of community. I think interdependency takes on a, on a particular significance uh, in relation to disability. Firstly, I think disability is the kind of quintessential interdependence uh, category. Because if you think uh, it, uh, historically, uh, disabled people's relationships with, with PAEs, with uh, the various technologies um, um, over the years, display already what we might call a distributed self. This idea that you know, we are what we are through our connections with other people and with other things. Um, and it frustrates me when I you know, hear kind of conversations about interdependency, disability is not the first to be mentioned, you know, because it seems to me that disability, like I say, is like a quintessential position. I think we also need to recognise that we live in um, times um, whereby interdependence is often relegated. Um, and we think, you know, and this goes back to the discussion we were having, you know, earlier about, about the dominance of ableism um, and the ways in which ideas like ableism are, you know, rely upon processes like psychologization and medicalization. What they're all doing is essentially saying, you know, individuals, when they work well, function, are competent or autonomous, have value in the world. And when they don't, you know, then they fail. Right. Um, whereas interdependence, what that's doing is, is kind of turning that on its head and saying, no, we are what we are through our distributions, our, our assemblages, our connections with other human things. Um, Richard Hawley, uh, great, great, great musician. And, you know, after the second song was introduced us to the band and quite clearly, you know, that that music is a collective process there. We, we're aware, you know, to what extent do we do we value and celebrate our distributed selves? And let's be frank here, we, you know, we we go from one context to another throughout our life course where there, it's all about individual achievement. You know, we think about schools and how schools are set up um, in particular ways to, um, you know, almost like fill kids' heads with ideas that will uh, permit them to 
pass their exams. It's all about individual achievement there. We look at kind of what our workplaces, I'm thinking about my own, which is, you know, university workplaces, which are all about individual achievements, about being agile, responsive. You know, we hear this language all the time in these, you know, turbulent times. And what's worrying, it seems to me, is that we still, you know, live in a very, very individualistic culture. So for me, the idea of interdependency is an antidote to that. Uh, and to push it even further, if you really want to understand what interdependence is about, you know, well, go to disability because, you know, disabled people's communities and disability theory that's been generated over many years now is always kind of alerting us to the fact that um, when the human condition is word well, it's doing so um, embedded within uh, a community, uh, embedded within a variety of kind of crucial interrelationships. Um, let us not forget here that disabled people themselves are always embedded in those communities. And quite frankly, some of these communities would, would not exist without disabled people. I was once at a, uh, a seminar with someone, I think it was a medic, asked the question, you know, how much, um, how, how much um, are uh, autistic people costing the economy? Well, another way of thinking about that would be, well, how much, you know, how much money are the autistic people generating for the economy through the industries that exist, through therapy, through you know, psychology, through all these specialisms? Again, there's this idea, I think that's based upon the notion that disability is somehow kind of sucking, you know, resources out of uh, society when actually disabled people's place within it. Um, and we think more broadly about our, our place within our communities um, is more kind of relational. So I think, yeah, interdependence is a potentially affirmative understanding of essentially um, our very relational uh, nature as human beings. That's super interesting. I hadn't appreciated until I heard your articulation about how you can really see disability as, you know, your go-to root idea for thinking about in interdependence. And, and like you say, this is partly because you know, there's so many other things going on that sometimes oftentimes in fact maybe most of the time disability is is not uh the the first idea or ideas around that which comes through and now that you've you've put it that it just like it obviously should be the the first way of of thinking about this because it it it's it's where it is and it and it's rooted um, um so i find that really yeah. usefully i mean challenging. sorry it's okay to come up come on, sure. come on that point i mean yeah i suppose i would just kind of maybe disqualify what I've just said in some ways around disability. I mean, I, you know, there's a frustration for me that disability is often not considered. Um, and, you know, I suppose if somebody works in the, in, in the, in the area of the disability studies and disability research, I'd want obviously disability to be a kind of um, a conversation starter. But I think also, you know, we have to be careful here that, that we don't replicate um, some of the kind of uh, divisions that have happened in the past. So I wouldn't want to argue that disability, um, you know, appears without recognising that we're all very intersectional. Yeah. And there'll be moments within particular spaces where um, class and, and, and race and, and sexuality, gender, they might actually be the, if you like, the starting conversations here. So uh, I just want to be be careful that, you know, I wasn't, just pushing through this kind of idea that disability is the, the grand master narrative that everybody should be thinking about. More that we need to think about how disability intersects with other kind of identities as well. Yeah, no, well heard. Um, and there's a tendency sometimes by, how to put it, to say um, uh, majority groups to kind of divide and rule as they have done for the centuries. Mm -hmm. which obviously um, we would not uh, we would not want. Um, but I, I do think the point is well made in terms of the, the challenge that you've given to me that I didn't um, 
again, like there are these other, and it's very intersexual, like you say, uh, disabled people are often poor and, you know, things like this, but particularly thinking about independence and relationships um, of that type of thought, I hadn't fully seen it through that uh, disability lens, which I think would be, would be useful um, on that. And, and also because so many, uh, so many things in our world are, do rely on that. Uh, relationship across creative arts or even business and, and the things so I'm kind of just thinking out um, aloud on that um, that maybe leads me to one uh, somewhat intersectional idea also in your book about desire um, I was listening to Amia uh, Srinivasan who's a philosopher now at Oxford probably most famous for her feminist uh, philosophy although she writes really beautifully about uh, animals um, as well uh, but she's written a book which has a lot about uh, desire and there was one thing I was picking up in, in both of your uh, works which is this idea about how much desire I guess um, well I guess there's this interdependence part but to what extent is, is learned and to what extent you know culture uh, shapes that um, and I was I was kind of surprised to see a, a chapter about uh, desire uh, in your book, which probably was a challenge to myself uh, in, in its own way. Um, maybe you want to reflect about what you were thinking or saying about raising that question in your book about uh, other human questions. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think well, it comes from, I suppose, a number of different spaces. I mean, one of them is, uh, this has been, uh, is associated with what we might call crip theory, which is, ideas uh, generated from disability studies uh, community where which posits um, this idea that disability is something to be desired um, and that is a really interesting idea on many levels I mean what it does it is some people find that really challenging because of course you know we're brought up to understand disabilities as being the very last thing that would that people would desire um, but what group theory does is it, it suggests that disability um, is part of the human condition, is something that can be desired for what it can give and what it gives in the world. And I, I really love the idea of um, this kind of idea of disability being very productive in the world. This um, idea of desires being productive um, also links into a kind of philosopher that I really like and that, um, and that's Gil Deleuze, who um, talks about one of the, the real hang-ups that human beings have is that they're just caught up in this never-ending cycle of desire, which is predicated upon desiring the things that we feel we lack. Um, and we try and, you know, you get that feeling, I kind of speak personally here, but, you know, it's like that moment upon, um, you know, online shopping where, there's a real feeling of, you know, you, the desiring that, that, that very object that I'm buying, and as soon as it's bought, you know, it's kind of probably as miserable as I was before. And, and this idea of desire as lack, this model of desire is a dominant model um, within our societies. And we spend our lives, Deleuze says, just, you know, replicating over and over again, this notion of um, getting hold of, the thing, the object that we feel we lack. So going back to the kind of crip theory model, what that's trying to say is, well, how might we remodel or reshape an understanding of desire? And one of those kind of remodeling might be to think about how we desire connections with others. Um, that in that kind of the desire, this kind of more productive model of desire, we are driven not by filling this kind of empty hole, if you like, within us. But we are driven by the connection with one another to be almost like desiring machines coming together, coupled together to create something, um, something more beautiful in the world. And so it seems to me that what disability research and disability theory is doing is not only is it challenging some of these old ideas of ableism and disabledism, not only is it challenging, you know, the kind of dominance of medical models, it's also turning up in the world 
and offering us new ways about how we might feel about ourselves and others. So, um, and I really love that. And that kind of taps into my more um, utopian moments in the morning when I'm trying to be more productive with myself um, and with the way that I, I see the world. And indeed, I think you can see um, that those truly kind of beautiful moments of connection are precisely the kind of things that we not only should desire more, but actually often do desire more. It is only through connection with others that we start to realize different aspects or different, if you like, potentialities, as Deleuze calls it, of the human condition. That said, I will be totally and brutally honest, I spend my life living often that model of desire as lack. Um, and it's something that I'm trying to work through, um, uh, accepting that, you know, that, that it'll always be with me at the same time as trying to kind of develop new ways of desiring in the world um, for connection. And that, again, is where I think that disability, uh, disability ideas and disability community have so much to offer. That's fascinating. And maybe that uh, touches on then a, a couple of uh, personal things. Uh, um, and I guess there's glances on the kind of desire or the desire connection things. I was going to ask you about uh, Nottingham Forest and what being a lifelong Nottingham Forest fan has potentially uh, taught you or, or you reflect on. And, and now you talk about uh, desire. So there's, there's two things which come up there. One is obviously actually the interesting connections that I think football, particularly in this country, uh, can give people and community and that things. But then there is this flip side of obviously <laughs> desire and want, which I, I, I see across all uh, uh, foot, football fans. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of more moderate, maybe because my dad was such a, a, a big football uh, a fan, and I sit in a lot of my friends. Uh, but it seemed like an interesting segue on that. Is that are there any reflections on being a, a long life, <laughs> a lifelong uh, football fan? There. I mean, you could have used the term obviously long suffering, yeah. uh, which would probably be more, which would probably be better. I mean, it's, I think, you know, being a, a, a Nottingham Forest fan captures perfectly the split subjectivity that I occupy, which is one on one side, which is deeply ableist, wanting success, achievement, glory, um, and the reality on the other side, which is um, none of those things. But actually, quite honestly, you know, the things when I think of, you know, um, this football club, it's all about community. It's all about my relationship with my dad. It's about, you know, my identity. It's about, you know, a sense of belonging, even though I don't live there. And I think, you know, just football is one example of, of the different kinds of communities uh, that we all occupy, whereby, the, you know, the actual, we find our moments of interconnection, interdependence, um, and quite frankly, new models of desire, because if you're looking to sate, um, you know, a feeling of failure, don't go to Nottingham for your football, frankly. So there's something, yeah, I think that the, my relationship with, with a, a football team, they just capture actually that kind of, um, you know, that split uh, personality that we all have. But I think it's more about actually these kind of different models of desire that kind of drive us. Uh, there's nothing quite like for me parking a car, walking with my dad to a football game. Well, I haven't done it for a long time now. And just that, that, that feeling of being around other clearly deluded people um, and that sense of, of togetherness. And I think we, we, we all individually find it in just different spaces, don't we? Yeah, uh, Glastonbury, Glastonbury Festival will be another one for me, a moment of you know, real kind of human connection. And it is, you know, that is that idea of connection, connections that we desire. Um, which I think is uh, one of the touched upon themes in this conversation. Um, perhaps a, a, a two or three more uh, questions to sort of uh, finish off. Uh, one, maybe riffing uh, on that, on the sort of personal side. I, I think you say right near the start of the book um, that uh, we often come to disability through a personal uh, story or, or, of some sort. And for me, it was through uh, it is through my son, who uh, I still uh, believe has taught me more about what it is to be human and the human condition than I than I'd learned in my uh, previous decades, and still does as as he leads me into places in the world I mm -hmm. I definitely would not have gone through uh, myself. 
um, and you give a you give a story. Um, I think about your your grandfather um, with some of that. So I'd be interested in uh, in your uh, in your reflections on on that if you'd like to share. Yeah, I mean, I really loved your phrase there, leading you into places that you had not perhaps prepared for, not you know, envisaged. Or I, I think that's a really lovely um, wording, actually. It, and it reminds me, I've been very influenced by the work of of people like Rod Makalko and Tanya Tuchkowski, who are uh, disabled researchers, disabled writers, um, who embrace their kind of philosophical viewpoint is kind of phenomenology or interpretivism and where they say take your stories seriously to understand how you're being perhaps led into the world or at least being in the world and you know in writing the book I wanted first I wanted to write a book that um, was um, not aimed at academics um, secondly my mother read every chapter of the book which was um, really kind of a uh, my mum's not an academic but she's uh, a ferocious reader um, and I wanted her to, to check the readability of the book. And I think hopefully she did a good job on that. I can't thank her enough for that. Um, and in, in writing the book, you know, and kind of thinking about, you know, the, the ideas and, and the advice really people like Rob McCalco was to take, take our stories seriously. And my, my own really is, is to be, you know, disability was very much part of my growing up. My grandfather had had a stroke at a, at a particular age and, um, his voice was uh, was such was changes such that no one really could understand him apart from myself and my uncle who lived with him. And I think because I you know was young when when it happened, it was kind of quote unquote normal to me. So I'd have this kind of pretty deep relationship with him because I could understand what he was saying. But of course, as soon as he left the the space of the house, uh, he was subjected to various kind of responses. Um, disabling responses to go back to what we we're talking about earlier, and also my my my, my grandmother was uh, um, had her hearing impairment and you know was, was subjected. To... I always remember the, it was it always tended to be in kind of shops or um, uh, outside fish and chip shops. Maybe that says a lot about what we I did with my grandparents. Um, and just having that feeling of kind of you know like anyone does at an early age, just of just of anger and you know. Um, a visceral re response to other people's response to members of your family who behave in ways that are just part of the makeup of your family. And so it came from that. And I think um, the other kind of, um, alongside those kind of family stories, the other kind of area which really piqued my interest around disability was doing a psychology degree. Um, and I was lucky enough to do a psychology qualification where I was taught by lots of radical psychologists, Marxist psychologists, feminists who kind of got me, really pushed me to think about what psychology did in the world. But alongside them, I was taught by a lot of what I would call mainstream psychologists who really presented disability in some really, really dangerous ways, really negative pathological ways. And in fact, ways that were very similar to some other kind of moments of interaction in my family, you know, in shops, you know, and it's kind of, trying to work out what was going on here. Um, and I think, you know, those personal stories and that, that experience of, of, you know, being trained, if you like, in a particular discipline, um, led me fortunately to the, to the social model of disability where, you know, disabled people themselves were organizing their knowledge, which was counter to that really, um, really kind of negative and often violent response actually to disability and now I might understand that as ableism or as disabledism um, but it's I think what is interesting about it is that most people will have had some personal experience uh, of disability you know, whether disabled people themselves or whether within their families um, and like any kind of you know experience of um, discrimination, which is what, what I used to uh, experience with my grandparents, you sometimes you have to, it takes you a while to kind of find the language to understand that. Um, and luckily, fortunately now, we, you know, there is this, if you like, um, this throwing into the mainstream of these alternative ideas of disability produced by disabled people themselves. 
that do two things. One, they subject some of these kind of medicalizing and individualizing stories to critique, but then at the same time, they offer up alternatives. And I'm sure you've had this feeling with your own son. You know, you, you do need the kind of, not only do you need the kind of the critical take on it, but you do need the alternatives. Because quite honestly, um, if you just sit with the kind of the reality of discrimination, it can be overwhelming. Fortunately, disabled activists themselves have, you know, created knowledges which are not just utopian, nothing wrong with that, but they're actually practical. They, you know, an alternative way of, of, of understanding the world. And so, you know, being led into places that you perhaps had not had in mind initially, um, let's just hope one of those places that we're led into is a way of understanding disability and the human condition in more productive, interdependent, more affirmative ways. Yeah, I, I think so. And you, you raised that point at the, at the end about these alternatives. And I think, uh, thankfully, there, there are some, like you say, often produced yeah. by disability people or other thinkers. Um, very tangentially, I, I see this a little bit with uh, climate activists or activists, or well, there are some climate people who are despondent about the alternatives and therefore are not as energized as they could be. Whereas the ones I meet who are pushing on alternatives, and I think there are a variety that you could choose, are energized to change the world or, or be that part of the world. So, uh, you know, this is one of the things that I um, try and talk about is that there, there are these alternatives and a variety of alternatives for all of this intersectional stuff that we've, we've talked about. Uh, and sometimes you're le led there, sometimes you might have to go and try and find it, but you, but you can. And there, and that will make, I suggest one be more fulfilled or more, uh, at least feel that you can, you can do something. Uh, and I think that's very interesting thinking about your own work, because I picked up that you, how would I put it, co-produce research uh, often with um, uh, disability thinkers uh, as well. Um, so maybe as my second last question, I'd say, then maybe tell me about uh, your current research, what you're, you're interested in, uh, and, and maybe some of the process that you are doing with uh, sort of co-producing uh, research and how that how that works. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, you know, um, co-productions become a really popular term uh, across policy, across research, across various stages. I mean, our kind of hopefully our, our understanding of this and hopefully our practice is about you know starting with an assumption, and the assumption is that um, disabled people are not um, passive objects of inquiry. Um, it sounds again when you say it, you think, well, yeah, and what, what, what's the other obvious statement we're going to come up with this morning? But, you know, let's be frank, um, there are industries of research, there are disciplines um, across universities whereby disability is ubiquitous, but it's ubiquitous as a kind of passive object of inquiry. Co production, um, hopefully, works from the position that disability is the driving subject of inquiry and that disabled people uh, can occupy positions of being the theorists, theoretical, theoretical prov provocateurs, um, methodologists, researchers, um, uh, analysts, co-writers, co-authors. So this is about, and it's, you know, it's been a very much a, um, an, an argument from social model writers for many years is that um, what what used to be called emancipatory disability research is that research should be driven by disabled people in collaboration with researchers to identify um, uh, you know matters in their lives that are important and to come up with particular changes that improve their lives. So it, it, what I think is interesting again is that you one pick up, sadly again how often disability is not mentioned how there's a whole history of disability researchers that have not that never, you know are ignored that have been arguing for this kind of more emancipatory model for many many years so 
you know, co-production knowledge is again, I suppose it's picking up on some, some of the things again we've been talking about today, which is around interdependence, working together, and hopefully challenging some of the hierarchies that exist between the so-called researcher or the, the researcher and the researched. Um, and so we've uh, finished a project with uh, uh, Kirsty Lydiard and Catherine Zwick-Cole and, and Sally Whitney and, uh, and, and other researchers who be co-researchers who've um, explored together particular research ideas whereby we try to create opportunities for working together, writing together, thinking together. Um, and to be fair to research funders and to university settings, co-production is becoming a lot more kind of promoted um, and definitely kind of more desired as, as in a model of research. One thing that we do need to take seriously, however, is that within the university settings, disabled researchers, researchers are conspicuous by their absence. Uh, disabled uh, researchers are not coming through university contests when we work alongside non-university research. Uh, researchers or disabled people's organizations, we must ensure that they are properly funded, not just remunerated, funded. Uh, and we also, I would suggest, just kind of a bit of a, um, a current bugbear, is the idea of experts by experience, which is a term used a lot at the moment. Let's be, be very careful of that term because it seems to me the term expert by experience is being used by researchers and practitioners and policymakers to essentially bring in some people to offer their stories and their opinions and not to be properly recognized nor properly paid for that kind of work. So hopefully we're starting a debate there around co-production, um, challenging some of the kind of distinctions between uh, the researcher and the researched, the academy and those outside of the academy. Um, and ensuring that we are working with interdependent models of collaboration um, that not just value people for their expertise, but also, you know, um, ensure that they are funded properly. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I, I'd never, I'm very far away from academic circles. I'd never heard of this idea of um, experts by uh, experience. Uh, but the way you describe it, I worry a little bit if that's an excuse to get some people in and not pay them, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always this is that was I referenced right at the beginning of the conversation about always being slightly worried by words or jargon yeah. because it's used yeah. as a cover of like oh that would be useful but let's I not. think it is yeah, yeah. I think I think I, I agree I, I, yeah yeah I think it is I think it's um you know I, I think it's being used in many cases as a uh, tick box next uh, a box ticking exercise and it's also um. What I really, what really is offensive about the idea of the expert by experience is it ignores the fact that uh, you know there are many disabled researchers out there that might not work in, in universities, but for example, self-advocacy groups or um, parent organisations who are, you know who know their stuff, who are carrying out research, have done research for many years, um, and they're not just you know not experts by experience; they are researchers. Yeah. So this is this notion of what would I call it? independent research i mean they're just researchers yeah, they're just not absolutely. within an academic uh institution in fact so we help run a group called transport sparks for autistic young people who are interested in transport and actually that group as a community group um has actually a lot of research quote unquote research to offer but but they you know we wouldn't view it as research right it's the absolutely. way that we interact with world and also interact with institutions and organizations and this other systemic uh, uh, framework, which I think is really, uh, really interesting, and how, for instance, uh, museum spaces have only, I think, relatively recently tried to really grapple with this, uh, and actually still do, uh, still do it fairly poorly, even though they're trying mm -hmm. to reach out to uh, some of these groups, which I think is really interesting, and that is some of this idea of you know, who's got the power of research, ableism, disabilism, and, and these things. But some of it seems to me that, that actually people are just not listening carefully enough, or, or they, they could just listen a bit more carefully and they probably would, uh, you know, then hear some of these things, which, uh, you know, people, people are saying for a while. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, last question then would be, um, do you have 
um, any uh, advice really or advice for people. Um, I guess you, this could come in two or three flavors. One would maybe be uh, life advice or advice if you're interesting in doing kind of research or things. Um, but another thing might be just simply advice or thoughts if you wanted to um, explore this area or any reflections that uh, you might have, you know, for instance, this might be advice or thoughts you've had from having followed your football team for so long. That's probably taught you <laughs> quite a few things as well, which might, uh, which you might want to share. So yeah, any final thoughts on, um, yeah, advice for life or advice for people? Oh dear. Um, yeah, I'm not sure you want, you want to take any advice from Nottingham Forest fan. Um, I think, um, I suppose, you know, it's a, it's a very simple point, but it's something that um, I think often gets ignored, is when you are interested in um, a phenomenon in life, um, but that phenomenon in life is, has, has historically been understood as a passive object of study, then, you know, we need to really question and challenge that. And it seems to me that, um, you know, if one thinks across a variety of transformative or political contexts, they have, they've come about, they've been transformed when the objects have become the subjects who have been driving the kind of inquiry, driving the kind of uh, questions and conversations that would be had. So for me, in, in terms of the, the, uh, the place of disability, the starting point has to be, always has to be, disabled people themselves and to recognize that uh, doesn't matter what you know the industry of psychology for example might have to say about disability there's a, a, a huge body of literature um, written by disabled people and their allies that has as much or more to say about the phenomenon than those so-called um, expert disciplines so yeah flip move from the object and embrace the subject would be my advice. Move from the object to embrace the subject. That's a, a great a final phrase uh, to leave with us. So uh, Dan Goodley, uh, thank you very much. Uh, your book, you, Disability and Other, Other Human Questions, uh, available. Uh, please do go and read it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ben. Thank you very much. If you appreciate the show, please like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast. Ooh.